Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Regeneration. We're glad to have you here on this beautiful morning. Can we just say the weather outside is awesome this weekend? Um, Yeah, not frightful. Um, Just a few announcements for you. Uh, This month, our check-ins are for uh, World Relief. So when you use the hashtag uh, RegenGives when you check in on Facebook, that'll uh, generate a donation that will help refugees around the world. Um, And the reason we do that is because at Regen, we're passionate about interrupting people's lives with the love and grace of Jesus. And so that's one of the ways that we want to do that. Um, next, our um, feast is tonight, and it's going to be at uh, Alex and Taylor Moss Dollars in Cortland. So the address is in the bulletin, or you can text me if you need to get that. I would say bring like a blanket or some chairs, because I'm guessing we're just going to be outside since it's so nice. Um, and then if you want to swim, bring your uh, towel and swimsuit and all those things, because they have a swimming pool. Um, and if you're part of one of the student circle, that's going to be at Alex and Taylor's tonight as well. We're all going to be together. So... We'll be hanging out, having a good time. Um, And then uh, finally, our one thing for right now is our journey on summer camp. And so I will be in the back with a sign-up sheet for that. Um, If you can't serve during the week, but you would want to be on a prayer team, um, I'd ask you to sign up for that. And I'm going to send out daily emails, um, which is some bullet points of things to be praying for those three days for summer camp. So if you can't serve but kind of want to be a part of what's going on, you can see me after. We still have a few slots, I think, helping with snacks and kind of being with the groups. So if that's something you're interested in, um, see me after as well. And I think that's all for our announcements. So I'm going to have Danny come up and pray for our offering. If you guys would pray with me. Let's go. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we come before you today, and uh, we're just so thankful for another wonderful Sunday morning. We can gather together, God, and we just uh, we bring everything that we're happy about and everything that we're sad about, God, and we just lay it at the altar before you today. Um, God, as we transition into a time of giving, Lord, I just uh, pray that we will not just give this this morning, but we will give our lives to you, God. Uh, and to that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God, uh, we are here today so that you can pull us close. And so you don't belittle our pain and our suffering. You comfort us when we are unraveling. God, thank you that your consistency is just that great. I pray, Father, that you uh, would break through in us today, um, that we would hear your voice afresh um, and maybe in some new ways as you invite us and challenge us to live into the way of Jesus. God, thank you for my friends and this family that you are building here uh, and for what you're doing in this place. Um, in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Kids are gonna go back. Yes, pulling my mic in. Like, pulling the mic in. Is that better? Okay, had to get it all up on there. Okay, let's get the stuff here. Uh, Hey, welcome to Regen. My name is uh, Kyle, and I get to be the pastor here, and I'm super excited about that. Um, We are in a pretty great series right now on um, the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, last week I taught on um, divorce and remarriage, well, divorce and adultery. Um, I sweat a lot during that, Um, not just because it was hot. 
But uh, I really am excited to be uh, part of a community where we are really just unafraid to press into hard things and true things. And so that's what we're going to continue to do um, this morning. Uh, one other thing, the last Sunday of this month, we're doing um, baptisms and baptismal reaffirmations, and we're doing dedications of babies. And so uh, we've got a number of people that are reaffirming their baptism, and reaffirming your baptism is really just saying, hey, there was a time in my life where I was baptized maybe as a child, um, maybe in my teenage years, and I kind of did it, and it made sense then, or it didn't make sense then, but now all of that is making sense now, and I kind of want to go public with that. We'll do that on the 29th. We're dedicating babies. We're baptizing babies. We don't dunk babies. We just sprinkle. Um, but everybody else gets dunked in an inflatable hot tub. So get excited. So that's on the 29th, um, and we're really looking forward to that as a kind of cap to our, our summer camp. So um, yes, that's at the end. So we're going to remember that. My wife is reminding me of something that you can be surprised about in a minute. Um, so let's look at Matthew 5 together. Matthew 5, verses 38 through 48. And if you thought last week was tricky, it just gets more so. I got to spend a lot of time with my brothers this weekend. I have three younger brothers. Two of them came up from Arizona with their significant others. Ooh, look. There, see, there is a picture there. It's just not downloading. Watch. Dan's going to help me out. See, there they are. So... Uh, Logan is to the left of me, and uh, no, Evan's to the left of me, and Logan's to the right. That's his fiance, Eternity, and we get to do their wedding in October, and that's Evan's girlfriend, Shannon. They moved to Arizona seven years ago and became friends with Eternity and Shannon. Eternity is her name. Yes, her parents are Arizona hippies, and, uh, um, and uh, uh, they became friends basically right as they became, as they entered high school down there, and now they're just together, and so we get to spend some time with them. Uh, for a family wedding uh, over the weekend. And there's a family resemblance uh, between my brothers and I. Uh, even though they're seven years younger than me, uh, even though uh, they uh, uh, have gone to colleges very different than mine, even though they live in an entirely different area of the country, uh, there is a family resemblance. There's a family resemblance there. That's great, Dan. Um, there's a family resemblance there, and that's partially because all of my mother's children look exactly like her. She's a gene killer, is what she is. Um, family resemblance. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' foundational teaching on what it means to be citizens of the kingdom that he has come to announce and inaugurate through his life and work. And through his life and work, this whole other reality is bumping up against our own. Just like the upside down in the show Stranger Things, something is happening where a new kind of reality has bumped up and broken into our world, and it demands that those of us who claim citizenship to that kingdom live in a radically different way. And it turns out the way that Jesus speaks of how we live in that radically different way, and the thing that Jesus is seeking after in the Sermon on the Mount is family resemblance. Is family resemblance. He calls it out in surprising ways because he says it's not found in our opinions or our votes or our Facebook shares. It is not found in the music we sing or the preferences that we have. It is found in a deeper kind of behavior, a behavior Jesus says is a righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees. So let's look at Matthew uh, chapter 5 and start in verse 38. Matthew chapter 5 and start in verse 38. I think it's two over, Dan. 
Jesus says, you have heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn and offer the other cheek also. He goes on to say, if you are sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat as well. And if a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it for two. Give to those who ask, and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. In defining a righteousness that exceeds uh, the Pharisees, Jesus looks at a law from the Old Testament and shows how he and his kingdom fulfill it, often by taking it to a new and deeper, or even maybe its original level. And Jesus here quotes a law that we see in both Exodus, in all three, Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. Uh, it's, it's a law called the Lex Talionis. It's actually a pretty common legal guideline in the ancient Near East. As Moses was penning the Pentateuch, there were a lot of laws just like this. In fact, the law codes of Hammurabi, uh, who we learned about in sixth grade middle school, uh, social studies class, uh, actually has this exact phrase, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It's about, it's about retribution. It's about limiting in, the, in a judicial system, if Sam harms me, how far I can go to get back at her. And instead of she takes my eye so I break her arm, the law limits me, it limits the punishment to she took my eye so only I can take hers. Uh, Julia, this is actually funny to think about, Julia punches me in the mouth and knocks out one of my teeth. I can only punch her and knock out one of her teeth. It, it limits that justice. Now, by the time Jesus has come into the, the scene, um, the, way that, the way that this is generally interpreted is now, and applied is now financially. So if Harry harms me and takes out my right eye, I don't get to take out his right eye in Jesus' day. Uh, he has to pay me a number that our judicial courts at the time have settled on that equates to a right eye or a right tooth or a this part of my body or a that part of my body. So what I want to frame, why I'm bringing this up is I'm framing that Jesus is not really speaking to physical brutality as much as the essential principle of like what is legitimate retribution. He's speaking to the essential principle of legitimate retribution. This eye for an eye, this tooth for a tooth, this lex talionis made a lot of sense in the legal system, but it made no sense when applied personally. Because if Dan Collins takes out my right eye, then I'm going to look to take out his right eye, and now it's going to escalate to he's breaking my right hand, so I'm breaking his right hand and his right foot, and now we go on and on and on. It's kind of like the Hatfields and the McCoys. It's this endless feud. And in fact, the Lex Talionis is still part of um, still part of Middle Eastern culture. And so you'll see these generational family feuds that are lasting because of this very idea of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth that's uh, even proposed a little bit in the Quran. Into this endless cycle, Jesus makes a remarkable claim. He says, retaliation is not what we do as kingdom people. When someone harms me, when someone harms me, retaliation and revenge is not what I do. Vengeance 
as the people of Jesus belongs to somebody else. Because we have entrusted ourselves into the hands of a good, good father, I don't need to seek after revenge. I don't need to get even with Aaron when he harms me because I can trust that God is orchestrating all events so that justice is brought to a fore at the end of days. But Jesus doesn't just stop there. Jesus doesn't just say, hey, don't go and get revenge. He goes so far as to say, uh, go and, he says, don't resist a person who is admittedly evil. Now, we stand up for the rights of others and we resist evil, uh, like maybe like systemically, but that comes from other texts. What Jesus is ultimately saying here is that I have no rights in the kingdom to stand up for my own rights. I have no rights in the kingdom to stand up for my own rights. Jesus uses four examples from the Jewish and Roman legal systems to tell us that we don't have a right to vengeance, that we don't have a right uh, to resisting an evil person, and that we don't even have a right to stand up for ourselves. We don't have a right to stand up for our legal rights. And this is why Jesus uh, is probably so very un-American in this text. Jesus sounds like this 1970s long-haired guy who's writing his thesis at his liberal arts college out east, right? That makes us kind of want to say, hey, dude, get out of the VW bug, stop smoking the pot, and let's get real, right? Uh, G.K. Chesterton said, or was it Winston Churchill, said that if you're not a liberal when you're young, you're heartless, and if you're not a conservative when you're old, you're mindless. Uh, it sounds like, it feels like Jesus never really grew up in all of this. But what Jesus says is that we operate in a different posture than, quite frankly, American values would indicate. We kneel. We take a posture of service and humility and humiliation. We serve. We put ourselves last. In the kingdom of heaven, self-interest does not rule, and even our legal rights and legitimate expectations give way to the interest of others. And Jesus gives... For example, so first he says, when slapped on the right cheek, turn and offer him your left. If Nick slaps me on the right cheek, he has to do so backhanded. And this is more than just physical violence. This is, this is an insult, is it not? I mean, it was an insult then and it's an insult now. If somebody slaps you across the face, it's not so much about the physical act as a much of the emotion behind the act of belittling and, and demeaning. And Jesus says, in the face of tremendous disrespect, we do not defend ourselves. When slandered, when gossiped about, we do not defend our reputation. We simply continue to assume a posture of humility, trusting that it's the Lord who guards our reputation. He says, when you are sued for your shirt, give your cloak. In the Old Testament law, um, I could sue somebody for their shirt. And this would usually happen in some sort of uh, financial legal, legal proceeding where Zach owed me money and so in order to, and he never paid it back, so I'm suing him for everything he owns. Uh, the Old Testament law said that I wasn't allowed to take Zach's coat or his cloak because if he was homeless, he could use it as a blanket. But what Jesus says in this is when someone sues you for your shirt, give them what they have no legal right to take. Offer freely, even at the cost of leaving yourself nothing to wear, give your opponent what they could not dare to claim. 
the enemy language ramps up a lot in the next example. Jesus says, if a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it too. It was a common practice in the Roman Empire uh, that any Roman soldier could dragoon uh, a random citizen of the country that they had occupied to carry their stuff. And so Romans bullied people with this. Uh, they would take people from their places of work and make them carry their, their armor, their gear, an entire mile on foot. And Jesus says, when somebody asks you for help, give them twice what they ask for, especially if they're an enemy. Especially if they're an enemy. Finally, Jesus says, give to those who ask and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. I lived in Chicago, and uh, it was impossible to go a block without being asked at least once for money from a person in homelessness. And uh, that creates a real problem when we look at this text because Jesus says, give to those who ask. He does not say give to those who ask up to a certain limit. He does not say give only to those who seem trustworthy. He says, give to those who ask and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. Now, one commentator looks at these four principles, which are admittedly rather generous, right? Give your enemy twice what they have. Surrender your legal rights uh, to not give your cloak and give them what they have no right to ask uh, and give give to those who ask without question. Jesus speaks generally, and one commentator says he speaks generally uh, to let us apply those principles in our own life however we may see fit. But the problem is that we will never do that. This is why actually Jesus has to speak so generally. This is why Jesus puts a point, a period without subtext or clause or explanation because he knows if he gives us the slightest ability to wriggle out, we'll do it. And so Jesus says, give to those who ask. Now, the real issue here isn't the difficulty of what Jesus has to say. The real difficulty is that none of us in reading this take this text, take Jesus seriously. None of us take Jesus seriously at all. Dallas Willard says that you cannot confess Jesus is Lord until you first confess that Jesus is smart. And yet what Jesus says here sounds like the ravings of an up-all-night, hyper-caffeinated, 21-year-old college student It does not sound wise. It does not sound smart. The biggest problem Christians have, the biggest problem we have, is not that the culture is changing, nor is it, although it's significant, nor is it that we don't behave like we ought to as Christians. The real issue is that we have a fundamental belief that Jesus is dumb. He's really nice. He's really loving and occasionally insightful in the same way a small child might be. But we don't really believe that Jesus is smart, and we certainly don't believe that Jesus really means what he says. Because if we were to follow the teachings that Jesus is outlining here in the Sermon on the Mount as people living in the 21st century, the 21st, not the 24th, we're not there yet, the 21st century, uh, we would basically stop functioning. We would be late to everything and show up half-dressed because somebody asked us for our shirt. We would have no money. The way of Jesus is frankly not all that compatible with our family life. It does not fit well with our schedules, the places that we need to go, the people that we need to see, the commitments we need to take and hold. 
And the thing that we do with the teachings of Jesus is we water them down to assume that what Jesus really asked us to do is be nice. That all of these things that Jesus are outlining are so impossible that really what Jesus must mean is if we're nice some of the time, we're actually living into this. That if we're occasionally generous, that if we sometimes inconvenience ourselves for others, if we're nice people, that some level or other we're living into what Jesus has to say here, but we're not. We think Jesus is dumb. We think he'll confuse our niceness with obedience, and he doesn't. In this text, Jesus is calling us to a radical inconvenience, a lifestyle that many of us do not have time for. I wrote down, the spirit is willing, but the calendar is weak. And the radical inconvenience that Jesus calls us to gets even more inconvenient in verse uh, 43. You have heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. See, family resemblance. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors can do that much. Jesus is going to start unpacking reward a lot in chapter 6. Verse 47, if you are kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that, but you are to be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Once again, Jesus quotes from the Old Testament law. There's a lot in there about loving your neighbor, but by this time in history... The Jews have reinterpreted this. Those following the, way, uh, the, the, those following the law of Moses have interpreted this to mean that neighbors are only those who are of similar Jewish descent, which is why Jesus tells this really stunning story in the Gospels about a good Samaritan. When asked, who is my neighbor? Jesus says, your neighbor is the person you least want to be around. In fact, probably the person you hate. Jesus looks at the Old Testament law and he quotes, you shall love your neighbor. But Dan, could you go back to so I can see how he just quotes there for me? Yeah, one more before this. There you go. See how the quotes are around love your neighbor. So he says, you've heard the law that says, and the law he is quoting says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But only half of that is actually a quote of the Old Testament. The other half is kind of what people say to each other around their dining room tables and while they're at work. Hey, you know what I mean? Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. Right? That's kind of what they took it to mean. And Jesus says, I know that you all tell yourself, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I am here to tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And by the way, pray for those who persecute you does not mean pray that they would stop. It means to pray blessing over them. It means to pray that God would give them blessing and goodness and shalom not make me more comfortable, make, me, make it stop. He says, love your enemies. And by the way, this can only make sense if there really is a new reality creeping up and into the world. And Jesus roots this, by the way, in the very character of God. He says, if you do this, if you love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you, you will be acting as true, true children 
of your Father in heaven, for he gives sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends the rain on the just and unjust alike. The story that Christian kind of evangelicalism of the 80s and 90s and early 2000s wanted to tell was that there's better rain and better sun for Christians than for those who are not. And that's not what scripture says. It does not say, if you obey God and do everything he says, he'll give you really good sun and really good rain. No, it says he causes the rain and the sun to fall on the just and the unjust, the good and the evil alike. It's, a, it's an even thing. No, God is consistently generous even toward those who don't like him, even towards those who hate him. God is not only really loving towards those who love him back. No, he is as equally loving for the person that you hate most. as he is with you. This is the idea of common grace. He says it's very easy to love those who love you back. And in this case, Jesus is right. It is easy to be kind to those who are kind to you. It is far different to be inconveniencing yourself, to exposing yourself, to loving somebody uh, who, who does not love you. And we can write books on boundaries and we can appeal to safety and all these kinds of things. But at the end of the day, Jesus, at least in this text, says, hey, love your enemies. In this last little bit of Matthew 5, the goal of the Sermon on the Mount is hidden. Jesus has this whole new manifesto for this whole new way to be human. And he says that if we love our enemies we will be acting as true children of our Father in heaven. The goal of the Sermon on the Mount from the anger that we check, to the lust that we battle, to the divorces we don't have, to the vows that we don't make, to the revenge that we don't take, all of these things craft in us and call us to family resemblance. Which is why Jesus makes a stunning claim at the end of the section, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. John Wesley, uh, who founded the movement that we are loosely affiliated with, and more than loosely, that we are affiliated with, called Methodism, uh, kind of nerded out a lot on this idea of what he called Christian perfection. Uh, He looked at this verse, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, and assumed that Jesus meant that perfection, this side of heaven, is possible, and that the reason we've not seen it is simply because it's not been sought for. John writes uh, in his little uh, treatise, a plain, account, a plain account of Christian perfection, that when a bishop of England asked him why we had not seen more people being perfected, he said it's simply because nobody has sought after it. He thought that it was possible uh, to, to reach a point this side of heaven where our desires toward evil and wickedness had been so diminished and outshone by our desire to love and do good uh, that, 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 that we couldn't help but become what looked on from the outside was perfect. I think that's very confusing, but here's something interesting that he does say in that little, that little writing, a plain account of Christian perfection. He says, he speaks of the absolute impossibility of being half a Christian the absolute impossibility of being half a Christian because being a disciple of Jesus is a uniform following of Christ, an entire inward and outward conformity to our master. See, conformity, 
family likeness. This is what is at issue at, when we talk about the Sermon on the Mount because it is entirely possible. Hear me. It is entirely possible to be a very good Christian and a very bad disciple. It is entirely possible to be a very good Christian and a very bad disciple. Jesus does not come to start a club. He comes from a family to start a family. Yes, Frankie. He comes from a family to start a family, right? He comes from the Father and seeks out brothers and sisters uh, to expand and make larger his family. And through that spiritual family, the promise to Abraham that through you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed is made good on. Jesus isn't merely interested in our preferences and our schedules per se. He is interested in them as vehicles through which he can transform us into greater likeness to himself and through that transform the world as the spiritual family he came to start grows. What limits our family likeness, then, is often how we cling to our rights, which Jesus, in this text, says we have no claim to. Legal or otherwise, they are not primarily for us. Our rights to raise our children is how we see fit, to spend our time and our money and how we please, the right to use our body however we think we should be able to use our body, our right to defend what is ours, both personally and legally, all of these rights, our right to be convenienced, our right to be comfortable, all of these things, all of these things are sacrificed on the altar of knowing that Jesus, not for any one tiny little second, clung to his own rights. That's where family resemblance begins. Look, if you got a Bible, turn with me to Philippians 2. And man, if you're like new to scripture, read Philippians, pay attention to this little poem in Philippians 2, which begins in verse 5. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Church, what do you think same means? Same. Yeah, same. Conformity. Who, though he was God, did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. Above the word privileges, if you're writing in your own Bible, write the word rights, R-I-G-H-T-S. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is not all that tolerant, is he? Because at the end of days, everybody, every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. What limits our family likeness is what, when we cling to our rights and our privileges, but we do this even in the midst of following after someone who laid down every right and every convenience for us. There should be some dissonance there. And the way that we are transformed into family likeness, likeness to Jesus, likeness to our Father, the way that we prove ourselves to be two true children of our Father in heaven is by following Jesus to the cross. Do you see how that text worked? He laid down his divine privileges and went to the cross. And it's only in through the cross that he experienced breakthrough and victory. And so here's what I want to do this morning is I could preach to you a sermon about keeping first things first. 
I could preach to you about the idols that you have that are revealed in your calendar and in your commitments. I could rail against this activity or another, or I can give you a tool for God to get your attention and let him speak to you. So we're going to do that. Um, this is something Paul McConaughey, who's uh, discipling us right now, talks about. To the left of the screen is this idea of before the cross. Eventually, God starts getting our attention. There's some things in our lives that he calls us to the cross, and so we get up on the cross. It is to be crucified. It is to experience death as our sin is worked out. And it is only when we go to the cross and live on the cross that we can get off the cross in victory. See, everybody's down with the concept of victory. Everybody is down with spiritual breakthrough. Nobody wants to get there the way Jesus got there, which is by being on the cross. So my question for you, church, is where are you going to the cross and where are you on the cross? And where are the places that you're not even letting Jesus touch? Some of us are refusing to go to the cross with a certain kind of relationship. Some of us are refusing to go to the cross with our time. Some of us are allowing other commitments to outweigh it because here's what I will say what Jesus is looking for in family likeness and family resemblance. The difference between discipleship and Christianity is this. In Christianity, what we do is we take our schedule and plug Jesus in where convenient. In discipleship, we give Jesus our lives and plug in our other commitments where we can work it in around being on mission with Jesus, expanding his spiritual family. Totally different priorities. And so where are you going to the cross? Where is there something in your life that God has been getting your attention and wants to work with you? Where are you on the cross? I I think I'm presently on the cross in, in a few ways. I think one is that, and we were talking a little bit about this now, I mean about last night, is I don't like to have to explain myself as a leader. I just want to keep moving and I get impatient with bringing people along. Um, especially as our church grows, it feels like we're kind of in a transformation process there, but um, I don't, I, I am on the cross in the desire to be liked without reservation. Um, I am on the cross about still that I think ministry should be easier than it is. I think my job should be easier than it is. Um, I am on the cross and going to the cross um, uh, in the areas of uh, how I just still, I too also want all of this to be more convenient and to fit into my life. I am on the cross about how I want Jesus just to be an accessory to what I do, which is weird because I'm a professional Christian. Um, I am off the cross in some of my anxiety lately. I'm experiencing victory there. So where are you going to the cross? Where are you on the cross? Um, On the back of your program, there's some space usually there. Um, If not, you need to just write on the back of your hand or type it into your phone. I want to set a timer here. This... Just be ready. This is going to become more of a common practice in our community that you are just going to be given time to respond to God. I don't need you to be smarter. Okay? I need you to be able to hear God's voice and do what he says. And so I'm going to set a timer for two and a half minutes. Babies are going to cry. There's going to be noises. Somebody's phone's going to go off. Somebody's going to burp or something. Um, 
let it happen, but invite God to show you, God, where are you inviting me to go to the cross? What do I need to get on the cross about? Maybe where is there some victory that I could celebrate? Is the task clear? And then you're going to turn to your neighbor after that and share all your deepest secrets. Totally kidding. Two and a half minutes begins now. Paul says this interesting. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, so it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives me. And the life I live in the flesh of this earthly body, I live by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not treat the grace of God as meaningless. I do not treat the grace of God as meaningless. God, we give you those areas that were just resistant, and we give you those areas where... um, We have yet to hold back on the cross. God, develop in us a family resemblance to Jesus. Develop in us a family resemblance so that we could be called true children of God, true children of our Heavenly Father. Um, Amen.
body of Jesus was broken for you and for me. He was despised and rejected by men. And yet not once did he cry out for his rights or his privileges. Instead, he was broken for us. And in the same way, he was poured out for us. He's blood spilled by men abusing their power. And yet he knew that he would be vindicated. And on the third day, he rose again, showing us that there is nothing in this earthly life that could limit uh, what he can do in our brokenness and in our hurt. So as we come to the table today, we come to the table of someone who laid aside every convenience and right to be called our friend. And so um, the way we do communion together at Regen is super simple. You um, will rip, somebody will rip off a piece of bread. You dip it in the cup uh, like a nacho. And then we say, taste and see that the Lord is good. So Danny, the intern, and Steph, um, and uh, Randy, could you help me out here, please? We pray that you would pour out your spirit on these gifts of bread and cup that they might become for us the body and blood of Christ that in the eating and drinking of them we might be the body of Christ redeemed by his blood united in our vulnerability as we serve the world in Jesus name amen the table is open would you come the downside of doing uh, what we do in our community which is heavily kind of laser focused on young adults is we tend to live pretty mobile lives. So Sarah, come here for a minute. This is our friend Sarah and Sarah and I have known each other since undergrad and Sarah has been uh, living in our house and part of our family here. You can go over there. Yeah, okay. Uh, As part of our family since September and Sarah got a job at uh, Malone University as a, as a residence director, and so she is going to be moving to Canton at the end of the month, which is just close enough that you think she should be here every weekend, but really far enough away that she's going to be kind of rooting herself in a new community. So I want to pray for her and bless her and send her, and uh, we love you, and it's been really awesome to like watch you flourish and learn. Um, I think you've learned new dimensions of your own bravery. And I've seen you live into that, and I'm really thankful for that. So um, let me pray for you. Jesus, um, thanks for Sarah and for the random things that have been in my fridge since she moved in with us. Uh, For like her kombucha and her kale and all of these other veggies that I don't ever want to touch. But God, thank you also for um, her heart um, to see people and discern. Thank you for her courage and her ability to speak truth. Um, God, thank you for um, just uh, how we've gotten to have a front row seat to this kind of blossoming that I feel like she did over the last year. Um, God, I pray for the students that she gets to work with um, in the next year. God, I pray that there would be fruit that lasts as she um, helps uh, these women hear God's voice and do what he says. God, I pray that you would give her courage to say hard things that you'd let her know when invitation is needed more than challenge, Um, but that also, Father, you would be by her side, um, transforming her more and more into your family likeness as she does this. 
And so God, we bless her and entrust her to you and are so thankful for this season that we've gotten to share together. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Uh, I love all of you. You're not allowed to leave or go anywhere. So like geographically, I mean, we can only really handle one a month. Um, Anyway, we'll see you tonight at the feast. I love you. Peace. Peace.